Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, great to see you all. Uh, please have that passage open in front of you. And as Matt said, he's right. Today we do commence a brand new sermon series. You can see it up there called Renovation of the Heart. And uh, as we start this series, I would like you to imagine uh, your heart, if you were to draw your heart, and I don't mean this sort of the comical sort of style that we sometimes draw, but if you were to draw an actual copy of your heart, uh, I reckon it might look a bit like a topographic map uh, with valleys and peaks and troughs and areas of plateau, the highlands, the lowlands, the summits, the ridges, etc. And if you drew your heart like that, then all of our hearts would be different. And that's a good thing. Your heart would be different from my heart. Uh, you love different things to the things that, that I love, and, and that's all good. But when you look at a topographic map like this one, and I imagine there's some scouts and guides amongst us who are fairly familiar with handling these sorts of maps with the, the isobars connecting the different uh, areas of equal height. That's what those lines are doing. Uh, the two most important things when looking at any topographic map is uh, where am I on the map and how do I get home? Because if you don't know either where you are on the map or where you're going on the map, you are in serious trouble. And I hope you have a sat phone with you, if you know what I mean. Uh, and there will be some stories in the congregation, I'm sure, of some people uh, not actually knowing where they are or where they're going using a map like that. Uh, the goal of the series, to, uh, the series that we're starting tonight for the next four weeks is to understand the intricacies of your own hearts to become a little bit more familiar with the topographic map, which is your heart and my heart. And noticing what our hearts love is vital, to notice what your heart loves is vital for your spiritual health and the welfare of those who live around you. We're going to be spending time each week exploring where we are in our lives, where we are on the map, where we would like to be, where we're going on the map, where God calls us to be in life and to try and close that gap just a little bit. Now, I am an optimist. You do not want to go into ministry being a pessimist. I'm an optimist. I believe change is possible in people's lives, but I also know change can be really, really hard. All of you, all of you out there, myself, we've tried to change. It's, it is hard. And gathering here tonight, a group this size, there will be people right now thinking about there's a whole bunch of areas in my life I would like to change. Here's just a, a snapshot of some of the things that might be going on in our heads right now. Maybe it's your irritability or anger. Particularly men, they get angry and they've tried to change and it's really, really hard. Uh, or maybe it's connecting with your children or grandchildren a bit more. You've tried to do that, it's just not happening. You'd like that to change. Or maybe you gossip a lot about people and you, or you love to know what's going on in their lives. Uh, Christians are great at that. They just call it, oh, I just need to know so I can pray for you. Have you heard that before? Um, or maybe you use guilt to get what you want. Uh, maybe you're tight-fisted with money. Maybe you're desperate to impress people and you'd like that to change. Maybe you've been accused of being racist or sexist or objectifying people. Whatever it is, it's far too easy to simply... Uh, to simply justify our behaviour 
or our thinking, but deep down we all know that it's not right and we all know we need change in our lives. We all know that sometimes our character hurts people and it's not honouring to Christ. And for some of us here, we might have been living with this desire to change and our inability to do so for years. And some people actually even give up. So I've tried so hard, I'm making peace with that unwanted tenant in my house. And as long as they don't come into the lounge room, that's fine. I'm going to lease that room out uh, because eviction is such a messy process. If you've ever been through that, it's easier for them just to let, or let them stay. This is why uh, you, if you're married uh, or you have been married, you might have said to your spouse, like I have, uh, after a fight about a topic that comes up again and again, this won't happen again. Or I'll work on it. Or I like to Christianize it just a little bit and say, I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. But, but friends, the issue doesn't really go away. And this is why resolutions fail. This is why ad campaigns, very popular at the moment, that suggest we can simply choose to be kind or choose justice or choose love are doomed to fail because the will where you make decisions from is not where lasting change actually comes from. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring how deep lasting change is possible. And before any of you think that I'm going to make you feel guilty, that's not my intention. If I have already, then forgive me for that. That's not where we're going. I'm not giving you a pep talk about digging deeper. I love those pep talks on the side of the soccer field when I'm coaching soccer, but that's not what this is either. I'm not going to be saying, choose the better path, form new habits, here's seven keys to unlock seven principles, nothing like that. Real change is not at the service level, it's not at the will level, it's at the heart level. It's deeper than the will, it's at the heart. How does it happen? You discover something greater to love. And when you discover something greater to love, something more beautiful, something more worthy, more inspiring than what you're currently loving, change happens. But we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's where we're heading. And hopefully you can make it to all four weeks because I think this teaching is, is quite profound. Uh, but we are streaming again at 10 a.m. So if you can't come, then you can jump online and watch it at 10 or whenever you get around to it. The four weeks, starting tonight, how the Bible describes human beings. That's what we're doing tonight. How does the Bible describe a human being? Have you thought about that before? Uh, understanding what hearts do. Thirdly, understanding our broken hearts. And fourthly, how hearts change. But tonight, what the Bible says we are as humans. And I wish I could point to a verse, a passage, a chapter in the Bible and say, just read this and you'll understand what the human being is all about. But it's more complicated than that. So we're going to pull some threads together just briefly tonight. And so one way to explore this question, what the Bible says humans are, is to think about, in the Bible, what the Bible says humans do. And if we find out what humans do, then we can work out what we are. And I know this won't be new uh, for some of you, but I'm going to suggest that in the Bible as a whole, we see human beings doing the following. Uh, we see them uh, thinking with their brain and their minds, uh, choosing with their will, acting or doing with their bodies, feeling with their guts, and loving with their heart. And there's not a whole lot more than that that we do as human beings. I mean, there are synonyms for all of those things in the Bible, but I think that's a complete list. 
But it gets a little bit more complicated because these different modes of humanity don't work in isolation from the other modes of humanity. And so we should never think this was just a head decision, not a heart one. Or I was acting without thinking, we might say. Or my actions were devoid of any feeling. It was business, not personal, that sort of thing. And so while in the Bible there are distinct categories of operation, they are profoundly connected. So we find that thinking and choosing are related, choosing and doing are related, feeling and loving are related, and loving and acting are related, and so on and so forth. It's this complexity of these modes of humanity that make us complex human beings. But of all of these, mind, will, guts, body, and heart, there is one that the Bible mentions that is more common, more prevalent than all the others. Way more prevalent than all the others. And it's at the very heart of our human experience, where our truest self resides. And it is the heart. And the Bible uses the heart far more than any other term to describe us, way more than any other part. In fact, over a thousand times. Uh, of course, the Bible, uh, sorry, the, the heart in the Bible is a metaphor. If you make a booking with your cardiologist and ask him what the Bible says about the heart, he or she will have no idea what you're talking about. Don't do that. Um, uh, we're not talking about the organ under the ribcage. We're talking about the part of our personhood that does the following things. The part of you, the part of me that loves, yearns, longs for, craves, worships, desires. I was going to read out all thousands in the Bible, but I've summarized it for your benefit uh, down to five. Uh, here's the first one. May he give you the desires of your heart. That's right. And make all your plans succeed. Psalm 20 verse 4. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me, Job writes. Love one another deeply from the heart. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The heart is everywhere in the Bible and the more you start to see it, the more you can't help yourself seeing it. It's just everywhere. Uh, Plato was asked what a human being is and he said it's a featherless biped. That's what Plato said. I'm not even sure what that is. Like a denuded chicken of some sort. But that's not what the Bible presents to us. And so with the sheer prevalence of the use of heart as the very centre of what it is to be human, and what the Bible says we do with our hearts suggests that first and foremost, before we are thinkers, or feelers, or doers, or choosers, we are in fact lovers. We're lovers first and foremost. And whilst the heart is connected to mind and will, it plays by its own rules, it's Unique, it's distinct, it's the deepest reality uh, that we are, as opposed to our brain or your will or your feelings or what you do. The deepest reality of you as a person is your heart. Now, Thomas Cranmer might be a name that's familiar to some of you. Thomas Cranmer, uh, the 16th century English uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he was alive during the time of King Henry VIII, which would have been a fascinating, fascinating time to be an archbishop in the Anglican Church. 
Uh, and he was largely responsible for producing a profound book called the Book of Common Prayer. And there's usually uh, lots of them in Anglican churches. It was the minister's handbook as to how to run church. Before then, it was a little bit chaotic, so they brought in an, uh, an act of parliament called the Act of Uniformity, and every minister from then on knew how to hatch, match, and dispatch, how to baptise, how to marry, how to, how to do funerals, how to do morning and evening prayer, communion services, etc. Uh, if you didn't follow the prayer book, you could end up in prison in England in the 16th century. It was a very important book to follow. And what's fascinating about Cranmer and the prayer book uh, is that he grasped what I'm talking about here. Uh, it's full of prayers, the prayer book, as you might imagine. Here's one of them. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love for your name. Thanks, eh? Forgot to press that. You're all over it. Uh, not graft in our feelings, not graft in our brains, graft in our hearts a love for your name. Here's another prayer that I love from Cranmer. This is the last one I'm going to share with you. God our Father, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as pass a person's understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all we can desire through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brilliant prayers. There is a Thomas Cranmer expert his area of study is the Reformation, particularly Thomas Cranmer. His name is Ashley Null. He was actually in Canberra this week. Uh, and he, when asked, how would you summarise Thomas Cranmer's understanding, the Bible's understanding of a human, this is what he said. I'm about to read you Ashley Null's interpretation of Cranmer's understanding. He said, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And I think that is profound. What the heart wants comes first. The will then chooses what the heart wants. And then your mind will justify what it has just chosen. We never choose something and then start to love it, in other words. We never think about something and discover our heart wants it. No, according to the Bible, it always starts with the heart. Which means this, everything we have, everything we choose to do, every decision we make, every person we befriend, every feeling we have, every desire comes from something that your heart, my heart already loves. But you might think, I hate some of the things I do. I hate stacking the dishwasher. I hate vacuuming. I hate... There's a whole list of things, isn't there? But why do we do those things? To provide for your family? To, to keep the house in order so your house whole doesn't get sick? To accomplish something your heart actually does love deep down. At the bottom of all of those things we don't like, there is a love that something our heart really does want. And our Bible reading this morning demonstrates this clearly. Let me read it just briefly again. A man ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees before him. Mark chapter 10. Good teacher, he asked. How do I get eternal life? Good question. How do I get eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I've been doing that since I was a boy. I've, I've observed all of that. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack, he said, 
Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what is this story about? A man who comes to Jesus curious about salvation with a will to either choose or not choose to follow Jesus. I think more accurately, this is actually a love story, a tragic love story. What does the man love? Well, he loves his wealth, not so much the dollars and cents. He loves what his money does for him. And it does oh so many things. It gives him power. And it gives him security and and comfort and protection and influence and credibility and a sense of worth and independence and self-esteem. And we could go on and on and on. And they're good things. But here's the scary bit. Not even the gift of eternal life from the Son of God himself could pry his heart away from that and onto the gift that Jesus is offering him. It's almost like Jesus had this crowbar and he's trying to wedge his heart away from... It's like a barnacle latched onto the hull of a boat and it won't come off even when he's being offered eternal life. I think this is a fascinating and slightly scary conversation because Jesus is speaking to a model citizen. A model citizen. He's earnest. He's on his knees. He's begging for information. He's showing curiosity. He's showing humility. He's always done the right thing. He's always been at temple. He's shown generosity even, given 10% of his wealth away. He's done everything any reasonable person could ever expect from him morally, religiously, socially, or relationally. And Jesus says, you're lacking. It's not enough. And the guy will be forgiven for thinking, well, what else do you want from me? What else do I have to give? And so this story reveals that Jesus primarily does not want our obedience. And he does not want our money. He certainly doesn't need that. Nor our attendance at church, or our morality, or our respect. At bottom, he wants our heart, our affection, our love, which can only come when his glory outshines anything else our hearts long for. Only when Jesus is more beautiful and worthy than anything else will our hearts let go of lesser loves. Friends, for those of you who are married or once married or would like to be married and can use their imaginations, um, remember back to when you first started dating your now spouse. Can you remember, remember that, anyone? Some of you, it was a long time ago, good. Some of you, not so long. Uh, it's always good when you ask couples to do that and they smile. If they don't smile, it's usually a bit of a, a warning. Anyway, I bet you, I wasn't looking at anyone then, in particular. I bet you when you first met your now spouse and you were dating and you were interested, your former loves, whatever they were, it might have been soccer on the weekend or hanging out with friends or golf or surfing or going shopping, they just started to get a little bit pale in comparison to spending time with this new flame. 
I tell you, when I met Emily, she was, when I asked her out, she was dancing at the 21st and doing some Latino dance moves and I was knocked for six. I'd never seen anything like this. And everything else, I forgot everything else and just made a beeline for her and knew that I had to have her mobile number and she graciously gave it to me. The rest is history. Uh, your friends will start to say, hey, we never see you anymore. What's happened to you? You've changed, man. When you see something of greater beauty, something grips your heart, more than the previous loves, our behavior starts to change. We follow our heart. That's how it works. I was once watching Emily play hockey, probably because we were dating and, you know, that sort of thing happens. And anyway, at half time, the team ran off the field to get their cut oranges and I just happened to be looking at the right place at the right time and this woman's ring slipped off her finger as she opened up her Gatorade or whatever and dropped into the grass. And immediately she went into a panic. And immediately the whole team knew that this ring was of high sentimental value. She told everyone. And everyone gathered around and started head down, you know, looking for this ring in this long, unkept council uh, oval that we were playing on. And um, it was real panic. Now, I, I was very casual about this because I saw exactly where it landed. And so I strolled up, I bent down, I picked up the ring and said, are you looking for this? And she, the, the smile, the relief on her face, she embraced me. I didn't know she embraced me and said, thank you. And there was great celebration. And it sounded like a parable that Jesus taught about finding a lost coin. Come and celebrate. I found my lost ring. And the game continued. Uh, it, it's strange to think, isn't it, that, that God never loses anything and never misses anything and never misplaces anything because he's or wants anything because he's totally self-sufficient in himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't want anything. He has it all. He's had it for all eternity. God doesn't long for things like us. He doesn't dream about his next purchase or upgrading the car or the larger house or the smaller house, whatever it is. He's got no bucket list. He's got everything. He's God. There's nothing his heart ever needs or wants. Sort of. Except one thing, the one thing he lost, right at the very beginning of creation, right at the beginning, when he comes into the garden, and he says, Adam, where are you, Adam? That's what he longed for, more than anything else. The thing he didn't have, the thing he lost, you and me, the thing that he lacked. That's why Jesus came. That's why he hung on the cross. It's why he bled out. It's why he died. So that he could be with us for all eternity and we could be with him. But only through his sacrifice. Only for us, only for justice. And friends, unless we see that, that we are his ring that he's lost, that precious thing that he lost, unless our heart finds rest that God has found you and you're safe in his hands, the compassionate and gracious sacrificial God, our hearts will roam. And they will roam far and wide, testing and trying all sorts of loves. But we won't know where, we're, where we are on the map and we won't know how to get home.
and our hearts won't find any rest at all. In our Bible reading tonight, we heard from Proverbs, a a wonderful book in the Old Testament full of ancient sayings, pithy sayings, full of wisdom. 31 chapters, take the Proverbs challenge, a chapter a day for a month, you'll be better for it if you do it. It's It's a father's advice to his children, one of those really important conversations a mother or father has. Now, I want you to remember this all the way through life, one of those chats. And there's a really famous part of the book, it goes like this. My son, pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. Uh, Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them in your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health health to one's bones or whole body. And here it is, the verse, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And so this week, friends, there might be an opportunity for you to write an inventory of what your hearts are actually loving right now. Maybe you take some time out of a morning or an evening. Maybe it's over at your lunch break. Take some time out. What, are, what, what do my hearts love? What, are my, what does my heart love? What are the loves of my heart? And to help you do a little bit of processing, I've, I've written this card. Did you receive one of these on the way in? I printed 300 of them. I hope you got one. Uh, If you could just have a look at those, I've given you a bit of a head start, which I think will help diagnose what's happening on the inside. I'm going to pick one fairly randomly. Uh, Let's think about power on the left-hand side in the purple there. If If you in your life love power, then that will just be, could be seen, misdiagnosed as simply confidence. You can walk into a room and you can own the room. You're a confident individual. Uh, but there's always a price paid for these loves, which is that second column. Burdened responsibility. If you walk into a room and own the room, then expect people to latch onto you and ask you to do things. And you may well be burdened by responsibility. Your worst nightmare may well be humiliation. Because the worst thing that can happen to you is to not to know the answer, to lose control, to not know what's going on, And that's your worst nightmare. Your problem emotion may well be anger. Because when things don't go right, you get angry. And other people around you might feel manipulated, used or handled. I think this is really insightful. It didn't come from me. Um, But I think it could be helpful for a little bit of diagnosis. Take it, shove it in Proverbs as you read through it and see how you go. I found it helpful. I hope you do too. Friends, we are lovers, as I finish. We are lovers before anything else. We're not brains on stick. You, sticks. You don't want to just get the right information in people's heads and then the right input, right output. That's not how it works. We're not featherless bipeds, a denuded chicken. Um, we are thinkers. We are choosers. We are doers. We are feelers. But chiefly, we are lovers. And so, friends, if you want in your life, like I do, to be loving the right things, to get them in the right order, so we love small things a little bit, medium things a medium-sized amount, big things a big amount, and Christ ultimately, because he loved us supremely, then I'm going to pray a couple of prayers, one from St. Augustine and one from Thomas Cranmer, and you can join with me in prayer in your own hearts. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are restless. 
and they will be restless, Lord, until they find rest in you. And God, we know you have prepared for those who love you such good things as pass a person's understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire or imagine through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.